Support for MindShift comes from Landmark College. Its annual Summer Institute for Educators takes place June 25th through 27th. Registration is now open at landmark.edu lcsi. Hi there. I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. You're listening to MindShift, where we explore the future of learning and how we raise our kids. I'm Nima Gobier. When I say addiction, most people will pull up an image of hard drugs or alcohol. We forget that addiction can apply to more, like technology. The broadest definition of addiction is the continued compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite harm to self and or others. Dr. Anna Lemke is a psychiatrist and professor at Stanford University School of Medicine. I am chief of our addiction medicine clinic, which means that I see patients who are struggling with all forms of addiction. She says a simple way to break down what makes up an addiction is by using the four C's. Control, compulsion, consequences, and craving. I'll walk you through them. Control means using more than you plan to, or in some cases, using longer than you plan to. Compulsion is using without being aware that you're using. Like when you open up Instagram on autopilot and you don't even realize that you've opened it. Consequences is when bad things happen because you're using, like troubled relationships or health, but you still keep using anyways. Craving is that really intrusive urge to use. Sometimes there can even be physiological symptoms like sweating or stomach cramping. Dr. Lemke explains that addiction can affect children and more and more children are addicted to technology. In fact, some kids are spending so much time online that it is causing their depression and anxiety. Coming up, Dr. Lemke breaks down the neuroscience of addiction, helps us identify its telltale signs, and shares how parents can help kids overcome it. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast 
with an S. Thanks. I feel like a lot of people fit the criteria for being addicted to their screens. And a lot of them are probably addicted to YouTube, social media, video games. Why is tech and the internet so addictive? I think it's important to emphasize that there are a lot of good things about social media. The way that it allows people who by virtue of geography or socioeconomic status or disability may not be able to connect otherwise. But there is definitely this dark side. What technology has essentially done is drugified many human behaviors that are basically healthy and adaptive. So how come social media, which helps us connect with other people, gets so out of hand sometimes? Dopamine is a chemical that our brain makes. It's essential for the experience of reward, pleasure, and motivation. And the way that our brain gets us to connect with others is to release a little bit of dopamine in a part of the brain called the reward pathway when we make those human connections. The thing about dopamine is, is that the brain will immediately adapt to the presence of dopamine by downregulating our own dopamine production. So that means that no sooner do we get that hit than our brains lower dopamine levels, not just to baseline, but actually below baseline. And over time, we need more and more of a reward to get the same response. The best way to understand this is to use an extended metaphor of a balance. So imagine that in your brain there's a balance, like a teeter-totter in a kid's playground. And that balance represents how pleasure and pain are processed in the brain. One of the most exciting findings in neuroscience in the last 75 years is that the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain and they work like opposite sides of a balance. Let's say I do something pleasurable, like eat a piece of chocolate. Mm. I get a little release of dopamine, and that balance tilts to the side of pleasure. But no sooner has that happened than my brain responds by downregulating my own dopamine production and transmission to bring that balance level again. And I like to imagine that as these neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level. But the thing about the gremlins is they like it on the balance. So they don't get off as soon as the balance is level. They stay on until it's tilted an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. And that's the after effect, the come down, the hangover, or in my case, that moment of wanting one more piece of chocolate. Mm. Now, if we wait long enough, those gremlins hop off, the balance goes to the level position, and homeostasis is restored. But it's essential to appreciate that the overarching rule governing this balance is that it wants to remain level and the way it restores a level balance is first by tipping an equal and opposite amount to whatever the initial stimulus was. Now if we uh, repeatedly expose the brain to the same or similar rewarding stimulus, like let's say I eat another piece of chocolate and another piece of chocolate, I'm pretty sure I've eaten the whole box and I do that over days to weeks, then what happens is that initial response to the side of pleasure gets weaker and shorter, but that after response gets stronger and longer. In other words, those neuroadaptation gremlins, they get bigger, they get stronger, they multiply. And pretty soon I end up with enough gremlins on the pain side of my balance to fill this whole room and they're camped out their tents and barbecues in tow. 
That is what happens when we enter into the addiction cycle. Because when we get there, we've essentially reset our pleasure pain pathways so that it's harder to experience pleasure and easier to experience pain. So now I'm walking around with a balance that's tilted to the side of pain. I'm experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria. And when I use my drug, it doesn't really make me feel good, but it does at least temporarily get me out of this pain place and to a level balance. And this is really important because I will see a lot of people come in and they'll say, doctor, can you help me? I'm anxious, I'm depressed. And then I'll discover that they're actually deep in this addiction cycle with either you know, some kind of tech addiction or other addiction. And then I'll say to them, you know, I really think that what might be causing your anxiety and depression is that you're bombarding your reward pathway constantly with this drug. And they'll say, no, doctor, that's not true. That drug is the only thing that makes me feel better. It's the only thing that brings me relief from anxiety and depression. But then I explain to them about the pleasure pain balance and I get them to see, I know it feels in the moment like playing video games is the only escape from your anxiety, but really all you're doing is temporarily restoring a level balance. What you're really doing is contributing to more gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance so that you will never be able to get out of that cycle unless you stop using that drug for long enough for those neuroadaptation gremlins to hop off the pain side of the balance and for your body to start to make its own dopamine again. I love the gremlins analogy. It's really easy to picture them in your head. How do these gremlins and the science behind them relate to social media? On social media, you have an infinite variety of people with curated personas, um, many of them augmented with beautiful images and lights and narratives. Um, And also the way that social media has enumerated uh, those kinds of experiences also makes them more reinforcing. For reasons we don't fully understand, dopamine is released in response to things like improving your ranking or number of likes. You made a comparison where you said that posting a picture is almost the same as getting a gambling high because you put this picture out into the world and you're hoping that people are going to comment on it and like it. And that idea of putting something out there and waiting for a response is similar to pulling the lever on a slot machine. And you get a dopamine bump from doing that as well. There's enormous amount of uncertainty when we post something. We don't actually know what the reaction will be. You know, it could go from, you know, from no reaction at all to the extreme of going viral and having millions of of viewers. And that kind of um, volatility and uncertainty is a huge trigger for dopamine, which is exactly why people get addicted to things like gambling. When we look at the brains of people who are addicted gamblers, there's a dopamine spike when they win um, because that's the reward. But the big difference with people who are addicted to gambling is that they get a dopamine spike even when they lose. And their most dopamine is released at the point of maximal uncertainty when they're really not sure if they're going to win or lose. And I think there's really a very apt comparison with social media that part of the draw is that it's a little bit of a gambling experience where you know you put something out there in the world and you don't know what the reaction is going to be. And so that anticipation you know, is part of, of the inherent reward. 
In your book, you write about how a kid will sit down and watch one YouTube video and they'll finish that video. And then as soon as it's done, they get a bunch of suggested videos. And the next thing they know, it's like three hours later, their parent is knocking on the door and saying like, hey, you've been in your room for a long time and I need to take your iPad away from you. And then there's just wrath. And there's a really specific tantrum that comes with trying to separate a kid from their device. Can you tell us what's happening in the brain when a kid just can't seem to put their device down? Yes, absolutely. So what's happening is that while the child is watching the video, dopamine is being released in the brain's reward pathway, and that feels good. But over time, remember, the brain will adapt to that increased dopamine by downregulating dopamine production and dopamine receptors to try to bring that balance level again, try to bring dopamine levels back to baseline, because that's what the brain does. We have this incredible drive toward homeostasis. If we were to stop, our pleasure pain balance would immediately tip to the side of pain. And so in order to prevent despair, we keep engaged. So it's not really even about enjoying the videos anymore. It's about trying to avoid the pain of stopping, which will inevitably come. When they get off of the computer, they're experiencing withdrawal. And the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and intrusive compulsive thoughts of needing to get that drug again just to get out of that sort of uh, place of distress. To reset dopamine levels, you mentioned that it might be a good idea to take a fast from technology altogether. For people who think that might be a good idea, how long should it be? And if you're a parent who's worried that your kid has a tech addiction, how might you make this work for you? Yeah, so, I mean, a fast can take a number of different forms. It can mean not having the device at all, and I think for extreme cases that that is best. Or it can be that the device will only be used for certain activities and not others. So, for example, eliminating video games or eliminating social media for a period of time. In my experience, for the the dopamine fast to really um, work takes about 30 days. And I always warn patients that they're going to feel worse before they feel better because when they first go, you know, start the dopamine fast, again, that pleasure pain balance will tilt to the side of pain. They'll experience the universal symptoms of withdrawal. But time alone will make that better as our brains start to realize, oh, wait, I'm not getting all this dopamine from outside. I guess I need to start making my own again. Slowly by weeks three or weeks four, we really do see significant improvement in mood, anxiety, sleep, and overall sense of well-being, as well as fewer intrusive thoughts of wanting to use that drug. If you take it all away for long enough to really reset dopamine so that kids feel good again, and then they're able to say, well, you know, it's really true. I do feel better when I use that technology less. Many parents are probably going to be really relieved to hear that. But for some parents, they're probably still really scared of taking things away because of the tantrum that follows, or they worry about doing lasting damage to their kid because they withheld something from them. And you mentioned that the majority of kids are going to be able to self-regulate, but there are just some that may not be able to, and they need a lot of support. Are there words you can offer parents of kids who are still learning to self-regulate? 
you're really doing your child a loving service by taking away their device for a period of time. Because to leave that device in your child's hands and expect them to change that behavior when they genuinely can't do it on their own is just is just not fair to the child. Because these are powerful and overwhelming physiologic urges akin to addiction. So we really have to help our kids by um, doing what feels very punitive, but which in the long run they will thank us for. You know, you'll you'll know that your child needs your help. If you see signs of anxiety, depression, insomnia, any of that really could be being caused by their time spent online. And, you know, even if the child argues, but this is the only thing that takes my depression or my anxiety away, you have to really consider the very real possibility that it is the online activity that is causing the depression and anxiety. So, so that's, a, I think, a really important message for parents out there. So digital fasting is one way that parents can help their kiddos in overcoming a technology addiction. Another might be creating barriers with something you call self-binding. What does self-binding look like with young people and technology? So self-binding is a way to create literal and metacognitive barriers between ourselves and our drug of choice in order to limit our consumption. Sometimes the goal is abstinence, but sometimes the goal is moderation. And when it comes to technology, for all of us, the goal really is moderation because there's no way to participate in the modern world without using some form of technology. And self-binding strategies basically um, have three major categories. One is Um, spatial or geographic barriers. So this is where we say, okay, we're not ever going to have any screens in the bedroom. Some people literally have something called like the kitchen safe where they, after a certain period of time, they put the device in there and they can't get it out again till the morning. Or it might just be deleting an app, right? So deleting an app, you can put it on again quickly, but it takes an extra few seconds to do that such that it might just be long enough that you decide, nah, I'm not going to do that. The other major category of self-binding is chronological self-binding. That's where we use time as a construct. So this might be where we say, well, I'm I'm gonna only use this device in this way two hours a day, two days a week. The other one is categorical self-binding. That's where we say, okay, I'm gonna use the device for this activity, but I'm not gonna do that activity. So for example, again, my patient addicted to video games said, I'm not gonna play League of Legends because whenever I play that, I can't control my consumption, but it's okay for me to play you know, some other game as long as I'm playing with friends and not playing with strangers. I was talking to a parent of a kid who doesn't have a phone or a video game console at home but he does throw a tantrum whenever he's at his cousin's playing video games and it's time to go home. For people like this parent who are not quite in the trenches yet, how can parents help prevent a tech addiction from even taking root? Yeah, so I recommend to parents that children not have their own devices in the first decade or so of life and that any screen time be highly supervised because that first decade is the time when we will lay the foundation for our child to have healthier adaptive habits that will better prepare them for when they do eventually get their own device, which is nearly inevitable. So what are those um, early building blocks? Well, I think being in our bodies. Exercise is a great and huge source of indirect dopamine and probably a much better way to get your dopamine in the long run. So I think making sure that kids are connected to their bodies. 
Um, making sure that kids learn how to um, develop what we call a frustration tolerance. So um, that they don't get the answer right away, that they learn how to think about something or um, you know, look for the answer. There, there's not this sense of instant gratification. And then I think it's essential when kids do eventually have um, you know, unsupervised access to their device that there's lots of ongoing discussion about digital etiquette, about what's okay use and what's not okay use. That was Dr. Anna Lemke. To learn more, check out her book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence. Mindshift is produced by me, Nima Gobier, and Ki Sung. Our editor is Jessica Plachek. Seth Samuel is our sound designer. Kiana Mogadam is our interim head of podcast. And Holly Kernan is KQED's chief content officer. If you love Mindshift and enjoyed this episode, leave us a review on your podcast app. It's a helpful way for people to find out about the show, and it keeps us going. Thank you for listening to Mindshift. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.